verses 1 through 11. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she has had many sun pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats, he seats them with princes and has taken them inherit the throne of honor. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we stand before you humbly. We pray, Father, in modesty for you to come into our minds and into our hearts in such a way, and especially through this word that is before us, that it will happen in such a way, Father, that that we are more than moved. That we, that we feel the light of Your presence, not only in our life, but in all of creation and in all the universe. Like a, a switch that is flipped on. We, we sense it, Father, and know it to be the truest reality of all that a human can know that You are near, and that is our good. We, we pray, Father, that as, as we look deeply into dark times in, in the history of Your people, that without judgment and without pride, that we will learn the lessons and, and repent and make changes in our life, Father, that reflect Your glorious presence. Help us, Father, help us to this end by giving us eyes that see and ears that hear this text. Father, bless our church. Bless, bless the people in this room this morning as we study together with this kind of blessing in Christ. For it's in His name that we pray it. Amen. 
There is on your outline a little fill in the blank. It starts off like this. It's a statement that we use at the beginning of every sermon in this Holy Word sequence or series of lessons out of the Old Testament and probably towards the, uh, the, the end of the summer we're going to be getting into the New Testament. But the, statement, the summary statement is about the Bible and it goes like this. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not just, it's not just pieced together in haphazard ways. It's, it's not just a, a, a collection of, of mythology or, or proverbs or, or anything like that. It's not a compendium of, of myths. The, the Bible is not a collection of random stories. It is one story about God beginning in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation. It is a story about God and about man and what went wrong, how we introduced sin into God's good creation and what God is doing to put it back together through Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as you know, as we have gone through the first five books of Moses and have gone into the historical books, that at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of Torah, the end of the Pentateuch, Moses up there on Mount Pisgah has, has died after telling the people over and over again as they're getting ready to go into the promised land to remember, to remember, to remember. There are three basic sermons in Deuteronomy and they're all about remember the greatness of God. Press your mind into the traditions and the history of God intersecting our lives and intersecting His, His people and how He has revealed Himself in such a way that as they get ready to go into that land, they will be unwavering in their faith. Moses dies, Joshua picks up the mantle of leadership, takes the people into the land, and by the time you get to the end of Joshua, most of the land is taken, most of the tribes are settled down, Joshua gives a rally speech, and then he too dies. Now last Sunday, we looked at the judges. And the judges, it's not a high point by any stretch of the imagination. It is not apex, spiritually speaking, of the people of Israel. In fact, we have this summary statement of the book of Judges that went like this. Israel, through violent entanglements and religious malpractice, spiraled down into a spiritual mess. And what you find is that the, the period of the Judges and all of those activities and events and all of that history, the good and the bad, is basically plowing the soil, it's plowing the land and getting it ready by dropping in the seeds of the desire for a king in the hearts of the people. In fact, Judges ends this way. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right where? In his own eyes. Judges is, is hurdling. Judges is a book that is avalanching at full tilt speed toward a king. Now we come to Ruth. That's what we looked at last Sunday night. Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. And you know the story. It's about an Israelite couple that take their two sons out of Israel into Moab. And there's a famine in Israel. They're not making it. They go into Moab in order to survive. Those two sons marry Moabite women. And it comes to pass through space and time that the father dies. And then those two boys die, leaving a mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law. And the only way that Naomi, the mother-in-law, is going to be able to survive in the world and make her way in the world is by going back to Israel, going back to her hometown there in South Judah, a place called Bethlehem, just about eight miles or so south of Jerusalem. And she tells her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, you need to go back to your people. 
You need to go. You're young enough. You can, you can find perhaps uh, a man to marry to take care of you. But as for me, I'm going back to my people. Orpah says that sounds like a pretty good idea. She goes back to her people there in the, the country of Moab. But Ruth says, no good. I love you, and I'm going to stay with you. And where you go, I'm going to go, and your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. And it's, it's, a, it's a really sweet, sweet book. And Ruth follows Naomi back to Bethlehem and takes care of Naomi, ends up marrying the, one of the few kinsmen redeemers in that, to that family there in Bethlehem, a fellow by the name of Boaz, and it just ends on such a sweet note. I mean, this is the book that gets mentioned in spring weddings. And when you compare it to Judges, you just go, how irrelevant and how unrelated can one book be to the next? Judges, it's kind of dark. Judges, there's some gruesome acts of brutality in there. There's some things that we cannot explain very well, except that human beings are capable of doing this kind of thing. And it's not good. You go to Ruth and you go, wow. That's an optimistic book. And what you have is, is Judges. Every, judges is the history of Israel in, in, the, in, in a dark place. But just underneath the surface, you have Ruth, which is optimistic. And one of the ways it's optimistic is the end of the book, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, this is that mother-in-law, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of Say it. David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. The book of Ruth ends with an emphatic, optimistic note. David. David, the great king, is coming. David, the king, is going to be coming. That's how that book ends. In light, and no pun intended here, in light of all of the darkness that Judges is about. But not quite yet. Which brings us to the beginning of 1 Samuel, our book du jour. The history of, of David begins with some very interesting characters. 1 Samuel opens with a story about another very famous and very special woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah is married to a fellow by the name of Elkanah, and she is unable to have children. And in Israel, during this period of time, that is a source of great sadness to Hannah. Her heart is broken because women who were able to have lots of children in that time, in that day, were in, in many respects national heroes in Israel. And she is, Hannah is in this 
polygamous marriage with another woman by the name of Penina, who has lots of kids, has lots of children. And from time to time, because, because Elkanah loved Hannah more and would give her a double portion when the food was being divided, she would take those children and kind of rub Hannah's face in it. And Hannah would grieve. And, and Hannah would, would take her broken heart to God. And Hannah makes a vow to the Lord and her prayer is answered by giving birth to a son whose name is Samuel. And Hannah fulfills the vow that she made to the Lord. She sends Samuel to live with this fellow by the name of Eli, who is sort of a priest and a judge at the same time. And with Eli, he grows up and he is dedicated to the Lord. And Samuel, too, will judge Israel. And while all of this is going on, there is trouble brewing over on the Gaza Strip, over on the western shore of Israel, right up next to the coast of the Mediterranean. The people of of the Philistian Uh, the Philistine nation are rising up again. And so you have the Philistines. And Israel, again, goes to battle with Philistia at this place called Aphek. And usually it's it's kind of a head-to-head fight, but this time Israel is beaten soundly. 4,000 men. 4,000 men killed that day. And Israel's leaders ask what all leaders do at the, the end of a battle where they've been defeated and routed. They ask the question, How in the world did this happen? Oh, right. We didn't take the Ark of the Covenant of God with us into battle. Now, you remember how the book of Judges ends? There was no king in that day, and everyone did. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this gives you a little insight into what that Scripture means. There is no inquiring of God about anything that they should do politically, economically, militarily. There is no inquiring of God. God is an afterthought. They're just going to do what they want to do because they can do it. And then when they end up on their face and in the mud, mud in their eye, they ask, well, how did this happen? Oh, yeah, we were supposed to bring God. And so they go to Shiloh, pick up the ark, they carry it into battle again, thinking that this time because we're taking the ark of the covenant in front of us, it's like we're taking a panzer tank into battle. They think we're going to win. But they are beaten again by the Philistines. And while Israel is fleeing the field of battle, the Philistines capture the ark. Israel does not have the ark of of the covenant with God now. Philistine has captured the ark. And ironically, they capture it at a place called Ebenezer, where a stone was set up, where where in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel is going to say, this is the place where God helped us. And in that period of time, that battle with the ark being stolen, Hophni and Phinehas, who are the the real biological sons of Eli, they are killed. It's a dark time. The successors to Eli are dead. And word gets back to Eli, who's about 98 years old. The Bible says that he is a hugely large man who is sitting on a stool. And when he hears that his sons are dead, he falls over backwards and his neck is broken and he dies. And now Israel does not have its recognized leader in Eli, nor do they have his successors. And on top of that, and worse yet, the Ark of the Covenant of God is in the hands of the Philistines. It does not get much darker than this. Well, those Philistines, they think that they have captured the greatest thing in the world. And you can just kind of imagine. I guess I kind of grew up having read all those J.R.R. Tolkien books that the Philistines kind of look like orcs. 
and which is not true at all, that I just kind of had this, this, this feeling that they looked like orcs. But these Philistines, human beings, take the ark back to Ashdod, one of the great eight cities of the Gaza Strip, there of, of the land of Philistia, and they set the ark up in the temple of their god, Dagon. And a funny thing happens. They set that ark down thinking Dagon is ruling over the ark of the covenant, the god of Israel. And the strange thing they discover the next morning that the statue of Dagon has fallen over. And it's actually lower than the Ark of the Covenant. And so they set him back up. They go to bed that night, come the next morning, find the exact same thing. Very curious. They find Dagon toppled over with his head and his hands broken off. And then we read chapter 5 and verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And after seven months, we're now in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the ark is returned to Israel and it is stored in the home of Eleazar of Kiriath-Jerim and it's stored there kind of in his garage for the next 20 years. Now, during this period of time, because the ark has come back, there's a bit of a mini-revival in Israel. But you know, when things are dark and things are not good, and people's hearts are not really into it, they get excited for a short period of time. But the revival does not last very long. And it leads to this point in history where the people do not want to judge. What they want is a king. And so they say to Samuel in chapter 8, verse 5, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. But here's the kicker. Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other, what church? Nations have. And it's here in 1 Samuel that we're introduced to Saul. Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. Saul is kind of the, and I don't know if I'm speaking for all the women, Saul is sort of the George Clooney of Israel. And he's tall, he's dark, and he's handsome, and he looks good with a beard. And, and Samuel anoints him king, and Saul really begins well. And it's kind of, read it for yourself, uh, but it's kind of a funny story how he becomes king, but he, he begins very well. He begins well by defeating the Ammonites, and he goes to war against the dreaded Philistines, and it's a bitter war, and it's bitter war all the days of Saul's life. But soon there are flaws in his character that begin to show up. There are character flaws. There are red flags, spiritual red flags that begin to be raised in in the eyes of of, of those that are spiritually sensitive in Israel to the kind of character, the kind of person, the kind of presumptuousness that has come into the heart of Saul. It all begins to show up, and what they discover is that he is not a king after God's own heart. And Saul is told by God to go to war with the Amalekites, and to destroy them utterly, leave nothing. Leave nothing. And it sounds awful to our Western ears, our modern ears, but we have to remember that this is not imperialism. This is not a battle where they're to wipe out everything, and it's imperialism where Saul is to accrue power and wealth and influence by the booty and the loot that he takes away from the Amalekites. This is really justice, and that's why they are utterly, the biblical word, utterly destroyed Amalekites were a brutally cruel people. But Saul does not obey. He captures their king, Agag, keeps all the choice livestock. 
And it's in this event, more clearly probably than any other event, that sadly Saul reveals he is like all the other kings of the earth. Saul is no different. Saul is like all the other kings of the earth. God wants a king with a heart like God. God wants a king with a heart like God, and it's not Saul. You go back to Hannah's song in chapter 2 that that Bob read for us just a minute ago. She sings a song at the birth of Samuel, and at the end of the song she sings in verse 10, He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. You know what that word is in Hebrew? Messiah, the Messiah. Exalt the horn of His Messiah. In, In Greek, the Hebrew word is Christ. Hannah sings a song about a king long before there is a king in the land of Israel. And she sings about the king with the heart of God, uh, the the, the Messiah, God's anointed. He's going to be the one that will be a deliverer. He's the one that is going to strengthen the weak. He is the one that is going to feed the hungry. The barren, where there is no life, there will be life. The barren will become fruitful. It is a vision of of a king who will use his power like God uses his power. In other words, he is going to be one who serves in order to to lead. Do you know how he attracts people to himself? Not by power, but by blessing. He attracts people by serving them. Saul is not like this. And so Samuel weeps. Samuel is grieved. And in verse 11 of chapter 15, he's up all night crying. (coughs) he's up all night crying to the Lord. Some time passes by. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord comes to Samuel and says, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Notice that he doesn't say you shouldn't grieve. God doesn't say that. God says there comes a point where in your life you move on. He says, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse under the guise of worship because Samuel would show up and he was either going to lead the people in worship or he was going to say something terrible about the way that they were living, sort of a, 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 a negative prophecy. And so when he gets to Bethlehem, all the people come out and go, Hey, are you for us? Or is this peace? Or what? He says, I've come to worship. And the sons of Jesse, as you know from the story, are paraded in front of Samuel. The first is Eliab, who is also a very, very tall guy. And Samuel makes the same mistake that he made with Saul, who was just huge. He looks on the outside and thinks that by seeing greatness on the outside, that there's greatness on the inside. Church, big mistake. And I mean, doesn't that, I mean, we, we can look at Samuel and say, oh, wait, what is he thinking? He's a man of God. Doesn't he know that God is after the heart? Doesn't that sound a lot like us and a lot like the people in our town? People spending a tremendous amount of energy and spending a tremendous amount of money on building a great image or a great appearance, even to the detriment of their health from time to time. And so again, God comes to Samuel and says, when are you going to learn? Verse 7, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, say it together, heart. Oh, we consider money. We consider beauty. We consider power. We consider stature. All of these things are social currency. They don't matter. It's about the heart. And then an astonishing thing happens. All of Jesse's sons are marched out. Dink, 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 dink. They all come out like ducks in one of those shooting galleries. And each time they come out, God goes, not this one, not this one, not this one. None of them are chosen by God. And Samuel says, this is kind of odd. One of your sons is supposed to be king, and yet God has not chosen any of these. Is there somebody that we've forgotten? And Jesse goes, well, that's all of them except the little one. The forgotten one. The one that's out in the field, sort of far away, keeping watch over the sheep. And Samuel says, go get him. And Jesse sends for him. And in this very, very dark time, David walks into the room. And God says, that's the one. Anoint him. And he is anointed by Samuel and the Spirit of God comes upon him. And for the first time, we're introduced to the character of David. Of David. Now, a couple of things we want to consider about David. We're going to talk about him tonight in his battle against Goliath. And then we're going to look at him again at the end of his life next Sunday morning as we think about the temple and his heart for God and building a place for God to be worshipped by all of Israel. But here we're introduced to David. A couple of things to consider about David being anointed. Number one, the anointed of God tend to not be the world's choice because they do not look the part culturally speaking. This morning in the, uh, the, the, young, the honeymooners class, the young couples class, we were talking about how God takes this, this shepherd from South Judah in this little town called Tekoa and sends him up to the ten tribes in northern Israel who are experiencing military success, uh, economic success. They're in ascendancy while everybody else around them is kind of descending in power. And God sends this shepherd guy to speak his message. And then secondly, not only does the anointed of God not always look the part, but number two, the anointed of God suffer. The anointed of God suffer. And that's part of the first period of David's life. And boy, does he suffer. Saul is on the throne, and he's going to be on the throne for a while. And Jonathan is his son. He's the heir apparent. And, and by, I have to say, you know, by the way that the Bible reports the kind of guy that Jonathan is, Jonathan is a great dude. Jonathan is a, a great guy. And it's a long time that David has to wait to become king. And during that time, he suffers greatly. He is for, you know, Saul tries to kill him, throws a spear at him, trying to pin him to the wall. He chases him down. He's, he's away from his home in Bethlehem. He's away from his people. He's even out of Israel for a time. He, he suffers and he suffers and he suffers. And he has to wait to become king. And he suffers loneliness and he suffers on the run. But what this suffering does is to cause his heart to long for God. He is isolated. He is alone at times. He is being sought. He is, it is unjust. 
He doesn't know how he's going to take care of himself or how he's going to survive. The only thing that he can learn to do is to trust God and to trust God and to trust God and to trust God the way that God has always come through for him since he was a boy watching sheep when a lion and a bear came after him and God gave him the victory over those two predators. Saul, on the other hand, goes straight to power. Straight to power, straight to the throne. And it seduces his heart. David, on the other hand, learns obedience through what he suffered. Now, we, we spent some time back in, I think, 2010 or 2011. We spent several, several, several weeks going over the life of David. You, I hope you remember those sermons. If not, hopefully you've read through the David saga uh, multiple times in your life. And one of the things, you know, if you're familiar with the David story, and know that he is the anointed person to be king and becomes that king, that he really makes a lot of blunders. Makes a lot of blunders. There's that whole story with, you know, how does the guy that faces the giant in Goliath fall to the giant who is Bathsheba? And not just fall to the ground, but fall underneath it with what happens to Uriah. Those familiar with the David story know that he is the anointed. He is the one after God's heart. But he makes some tremendous blunders. And this is why we need to remember that David is, is one who points to a greater anointed son centuries down the road. When Jesus was on the earth, it was hard for a lot of people to believe that He, son of a carpenter, from Nazareth, and everybody knows that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's somebody who has never studied. He's from northern Israel. He's part of the rabble. That was hard for a lot of people to believe that He was the anointed of God, the Messiah. And even in his own hometown, when he said, I am the anointed, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of God has been poured out on me, that they wanted to pick him up and throw him off a cliff. He was not beautiful that we should take notice of him. He was not political. He was not military. He was not rich. He did not come through all or any of the right channels. Jesus did not look like the Messiah that was anticipated. And because that was true, Jesus was missed by and large by the people He came to. But also as the anointed of God, He was well acquainted with suffering. Jesus, more than just about anybody else in the Bible, cries. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus weeps. He suffers emotionally. He suffers spiritually when He looks out over Jerusalem and knows what's coming. Judgment. It's not going to be Assyria. It's not going to be Babylon. It's going to be the hammer and the anvil of Rome. And he weeps and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only I could be this mother hen that gathered her chicks underneath her wings and protected them. He suffered at the hands of His own people. He came into His own, but His own knew Him not. He came and suffered at the hands of His own people in order to redeem us. 
And that suffering was such a stumbling block. You remember in Luke 24, those disciples had left Jerusalem right after the Passover. Jesus had been crucified. They're heading back to Emmaus. And they're talking to each other. They're really disappointed. They thought Jesus was the one. Jesus shows up. He is kept from being recognized somehow by them. And He starts talking to them. And He said, man, we really thought that this Jesus was the one. He was going to be the one to redeem all of Israel. Put Israel back on the map. But He suffered. And Jesus looks him right in the eye and says, you know what, you don't really know the Scripture. If you knew Scripture, you would know that the Messiah has to suffer. And we're reminded of that word, the Hebrew writer, chapter 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Son though He was, he learned obedience from what he said, suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Suffered. You, you know, in, in our world today, we don't really like to suffer all that much. Give me an aspirin. Give me some ibuprofen. And I'm not a glutton for punishment. Don't get me wrong. But we are so quick to run from suffering that we have put such a negative connotation on it that one of the most beautiful things that, w- that, that will ever transform us deals with suffering. Why in the world would Jesus choose to suffer? I mean, in our world right now, with our world, our culture, we, suffering is such a terrible thing. Why would He choose to do it? In our world, to choose to do that is, is, is tantamount to some kind of mental instability, emotional, psychological, social dysfunction. And yet He chooses to suffer as God's anointed. That Hebrew writer will tell us later on that for the joy set before Him, He endured and suffered on that cross. He chose to suffer, but suffer for a reason. It was for that joy that was set before Him. And when you think about it, I mean, Jesus came from God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He came from the Trinity. What more of a beautiful, loving, harmonious, perfect relationship is the God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit relationship? What was missing that He had to come to earth and through suffering receive it. The joy that was set before Him. And seeing, looking at that joy, set before Him, endured, suffered the cross. The only thing that I can think of is that that joy was us. That that joy was us. That when we look at ourselves and I'm not trying to make man something that, he, that he's not. You know, when we look at ourselves, you know, we see about nine-tenths chicken, phony, and slob. But when the Christ, the anointed of God, looks at us, he sees joy. I don't know how you feel about yourself. 
and I don't know what you feel about yourself or how you think about yourself, what it's based on, if it's tied to outward appearance or whatever it is, but there, all of that, any of that, is going to leave you and will disappoint you and will never be what it, what it promises or guarantees itself to be. The only thing that matters is knowing that Christ made you His joy and suffered so that you didn't have to and died so that you don't have to that second death. He made you that joy so that when you look at Him, He becomes your joy. You need to let that sit in. And let it change your life. The Bible's not written as a manual for life. If you treat the Bible as a manual for life, it will crush you. The Bible tells us about the one who died for us so that we can live for him. And the obedience and, and, and the structure to a disciplined life comes because he first loved us. And maybe there's some ways that our church can minister to you right now. Maybe you've never made Jesus your joy by recognizing that you're a joy to Him. By putting Him on in baptism and having your sins washed away and beginning a life with Him for the rest of your life into all of eternity with God. Never, 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 ever to be separated from Him. To be given that kind of significance. To be given that kind of identity. To be made part of the body of Christ. To be made beautiful that way. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there's any way that our church can minister to you this morning, we're going to sing a song of praise to God. We want you to come down if we can minister to you and talk to these shepherds. For the rest of us, let's stand and sing. Holy words, long preserved for our one.